You can be seated, and as uh, you are seated, the kids, you can start making your way to your classes, and as the kids start making their way, let's have all the ladies, all the young ladies who went to the dance on Friday, give a round of applause to Amy and all the people who put on the dance. It was a fabulous evening, so thank you everyone who attended and helped make that happen. Um, Our girls had a blast. It was one of the best nights of their life, they said. They got to stay up past nine. It was amazing. And then we were woken up very early Saturday morning with the girls dancing the Macarena in our room. So apparently, what more could you ask for as a father? Now, our house is kind of clearly divided between those who can dance and those who can't. And uh, I'll let you guess who who is where in the category. And... uh, I was encouraged by the, the children who unfortunately take after their father and can't were very eager and energetic and wanted to learn. And so afterwards, we were asked, let's, let's look at YouTube videos and try and learn how to dance. And so let's imagine that you want to learn, I mean, anything. You want to learn how to dance. You want to learn a new skill. Maybe there's something for work that you have to learn so you can progress and develop at work. How are you going to go about it? So obviously, as from David's question earlier, who listens to the Freakonomics podcast, we are all, uh, we are all in tune and connected to skillful ways of uh, uh, acquiring knowledge. And so none of us would just say, we want to learn how to dance, let's pop open a YouTube video. We would go about it systematically. And we would start working because we, we've heard things like uh, we've read our Malcolm Gladwell and we know that if you want with skill acquisition and expertise uh, attainment, you know, you can go do deliberate practice for 10,000 hours. And so what we would start to do is we'll say, all right, let's learn more about that. Let's dig into that because actually what that's revealing is this. Um, really new and kind of remarkable field of study, uh, an academic discipline on how people acquire skills and obtain expertise. So you might, uh, you might come across uh, this bad boy and decide, I'm going to pick this up and just kind of flip through it at night. This is the Cambridge Handbook on Expertise and Expert Performances. And so it will actually give you the pathway for how you can uh, obtain mastery in any field. So you might decide to read that, or maybe not. Maybe you'll say, all right, we won't necessarily go that route, but we'll, um, we'll look at different things to help us gain competency. So maybe you had a New Year's resolution, like you were going to decide that you were going to get fit, and this is the year that you were going to get strong. And so you find out that, uh, you know, to be strong, there's really only three things you need to do. You need to bench press, squat, and deadlift. And if you can master those three things, you'll become strong. And so you pick up a training manual on how to do those things. And you get one of these monsters, and you start flipping through it and realize, actually, those things are a lot more complicated than you thought. Maybe I don't want to be strong. Maybe I'll go for endurance. Maybe explosive. I don't have fast twitch explosive muscles. Maybe I just have one long slow twitch muscle. So I see like Julio's Iron Man gear and think, man, that would that'd be awesome. I'd love to have a sticker that I could put on my car that says 140.2 or whatever it is. So you say, I'm going to try to be a triathlete. How hard can it be? You just run, ride your bike, and swim. Every eight-year-old knows how to do that. So you go and you pick up the triathlete's training Bible. And you start flipping through it, and before you even get out of the introduction, you realize that there's this thing called cycling. And it's not riding the bike, it's actually periodization of your training that you have to cycle so you can peak when it comes time to perform. And you look at all the spreadsheets, and your eyes glaze over, and you think, oh, I don't know about that either. That's kind of complicated. 
maybe physical fitness shouldn't be my thing. Maybe I'll try cooking. How hard can that be? I'll learn how to make a beautiful creme brulee, and maybe we'll go to the source and get Julia Childs mastering the art of French cooking. And you think, how hard can that be? Until you read the first couple pages and realize you, not, you can't actually pronounce half these words. So maybe that's going to be difficult. So you think, all right, we'll, we'll get the Instapot. I've heard that the Instapot, I mean, who can mess that up? That is the easiest way to cook anything in the world. So you get the Instapot and you decide to buy its manual that goes with it. And you realize this is the easiest cooking device on the planet. And it still has a 700-page manual to work through. Hmm. Or maybe you want to go through other things, like maybe you're a millennial and your boss says, oh, you're a millennial, you must know all about social media. Maybe you can run the social media account for our corporation. And you decide to pick up the social media marketing for dummies and realize, wow, it's a lot more complicated than I thought. And you can kind of go down the whole list, like you decide maybe you'll get into photography and you'll buy the simplest, easiest camera, the one for beginners that Canon makes, their EOS Rebel SL1, I mean, it's just a one. And then you get this monster that comes with it, easy enough, or maybe some other training manuals, like this is one of my favorites, you wanna learn some basics for HTML, so you can uh, do a little sprucing up on your website, and you can go through this entire book, and at the end of the book, you'll be able to change the font and color of your website too. <laughs> Now this one has a special relevance at our home because this is the manual to woodworking. So let's say you just want to take up woodworking and I mean how hard can it be to build something like an end table? And then you buy the woodworking manual and you realize if you just want to build an end table, it's going to take a lot of work, skill, expertise. This is pretty complicated. So here we have a whole stack of different manuals that you could work through if you want even just some basic skills like how to lift weights or cook a French pastry or build an end table. Now, actually, here's another manual I've been working through lately, and this is kind of one of my favorite manuals. Because in comparison to, like, these things, I mean, this looks pretty good. And this actually is a manual for how Jesus is going about recreating both you and the world. So you need this manual if you want to build an end table, and then this manual if you want to see how he's recreating all of creation. And this is the Gospel of Matthew. What the Gospel of Matthew is, is it is a training manual on how Jesus is going about recreating us and the world. Now, so, so small and cute, but don't let its size fool you. So on the one hand, this should encourage you because it's not nearly as intimidating. But on the other hand, in this small package, there are depths of profound truth that if it can capture you, you'll never, never be the same. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important and so worth our attention. And as we've come to chapter 4, as we're going through Matthew, actually in chapter 4, very specifically, starting verse 12 through 25, Matthew's going to give you a summary of, in essence, Jesus' ministry manual. So these verses are actually like his pathway. Here's the process. If you, um, this is the process from the way he's going to build his church and then remake the world. And these are the core competencies. 
See, if you actually dug through this bad boy, it would tell you that in every field, in every arena, there's just a handful of core competencies that if you actually don't master, you'll never become really proficient in whatever arena you're trying to do. There's a handful of just vital few fundamental skills that are essential to building the foundation of mastery and skill acquisition. And what we have in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, is Jesus' three vital ministry tasks for every church, um, and then the three vital tasks that all uh, Christians need to experience for building his church and expanding his kingdom. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. And Matthew chapter 4 is all about ministry. It's all about the first three, the great temptations of ministry, and then the three great tasks of ministry. So the second half are giving our three, um, the vital task for ministry. And there, um, you can see if you follow on the outline, you'll see Jesus, he's going to proclaim the gospel. And we see the light of the world, calling the world to repent. And then he's going to personally call disciples. So the Lord of the church, calling people to follow him. And then he gives us a paradigm for ministry where the life of the world is bringing healing to the world. And these are the three core things that every church should be built upon and every Christian needs in their life. This is the three core competencies for remaking the world. Proclaiming the gospel, personally calling disciples, and then this paradigm for ministry. So let's walk through them. Let's look first at the first one, verses 12 through 17, as he's proclaiming the gospel. And here we see the light of the world calls the world to repent. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first core task uh, for Jesus' ministry and the way he's going to build his church and then bring restoration and renewal to all of creation is the first task is as the light of the world, he comes proclaiming the gospel. So as we go through these, a couple things I want you to notice. Notice the location. Where does he do these things? And then the action. What does he do? Location. Um, you see, uh, it's as he's going to enter into Galilee. That's going to be the primary location of his ministry. He's going to leave Nazareth. So that's where he grew up. That's where he was raised. Uh, he starts there and is not accepted. He's rejected by his own. And then he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum. And it's there that's going to be the location, kind of his central ministry hub. So for the next three years, this is, the, this is home base for all of his ministry is going to radiate out from here. So why would he go there? You know, there's a couple things. Why this location? I mean, one, it's just kind of strategic. You know, Galilee is in the crossroads of the three great nations or three great continents. You know, you have Africa, you have Asia, you have Europe. It's on the crossroad. Anybody who's going to travel anywhere to any of those places has to pass through this region. Now, most people in the world just view this as kind of a dirty old camel stop that you would just have to stop by as you're going. But this is on the crossroads of the nation. It's also pretty close. It's only about 15, 20, uh, maybe 30 miles from his hometown, so not too far. So he's familiar with this 
area. But even more, notice what Matthew tells. Matthew doesn't just tell you this is a strategic location for ministry, but it's actually theologically motivated. Because this was the area, he's going back to Isaiah, this was the area that first went into exile. So it was on them that the darkness first fell, and then it's on them that the light is first going to dawn. So they were first into exile, they'll be the first to return. And he goes to Capernaum, and that's a bustling town at the time, it's the local administrative center of that area. Um, filled with uh, energy and life. It's probably one of the largest, it's one of the big towns in that area. And, you know, we all have kind of different conceptions of what a large town is. So when we read the Bible, it kind of helps to get back into that world. It's like when Cynthia and I went and we taught English uh, in China, and we were, the people who took us were kind of warning us, you know, we're going into this small country, Chinese village, it's kind of small, and they're kind of downplaying it so we wouldn't be impressed. And then we get in this small country village, and there's 700,000 people there. I'm like, this is, I can't even do the math. This is like 70 times, I mean, it's more than that. I don't know how much larger than that, the, the, the town I grew up in. This is not small. And so when think Capernaum is a large town, there's about 10,000 people probably living uh, there at the time. But it's, it's the big center of the region. Now, notice the action. So that's the location. And why it's significant. Because he knows this place is strategic, but it's also the first that was sent into exile. They're the first going into the darkness. So for hundreds of years, they've lived and dwelled in a place of darkness. And you can actually feel that in the quote from Isaiah. These are people who are living in darkness. What it's like to live in it. They're the ones who live in the shadow of death that's been upon them. So he goes there first, and then he preaches. Look, from that time, Jesus began to preach, to proclaim, to announce, to herald, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what I find so fascinating is you just read through chapter 4 and you realize, in one sense, Jesus, I was about to say he's a plagiarizer. I don't think that's what I want to say. I think that's probably heretical and disrespectful in some way. But notice, he is just repeating John the Baptist's message verbatim. So whatever that makes him. Look at verse 4. John the Baptist, I mean, chapter 4, the very beginning. John the Baptist, I mean, chapter 3. He comes on the scene. What is he doing? He's preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as it was said by the prophet Isaiah. So you have Jesus is continuing and paralleling John the Baptist's ministry. The, what they do is they preach. The reason they preach, or what they're calling people to do is repent, because the kingdom's at hand. And then the playbook for how they're doing ministry, their playbook is the book of Isaiah. And I think it's fascinating, because one of the things I think Matthew is giving us is our playbook for how we're supposed to do ministry. They had Isaiah, it's what they followed. We have Matthew. This is what we follow. So he comes preaching. Now it's important to think, all right, what is this? Because Matthew, all throughout his gospel, is going to make a clear distinction, as we'll see this week and next week, between teaching and preaching. And preaching is, um, is a heralding. It's an announcing. It's a proclaiming. What he is doing is simply and powerfully, authoritatively declaring what is. So preaching is not, in essence, discussion or dialogue or there's not a back and forth. He is God's representative announcing what is. Notice what he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what reality is. He calls them to repentance, just like John. This is where it begins. It all begins here, this transformation of life. And then notice the parts of the, the components, the kingdom. 
is here. It's at hand. What is the kingdom? All week with our, our kids, we've been working on the Lord's Prayer. And so we're working on, so we're working on the second petition in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. So we're praying that every morning. Your kingdom come. And we've got this little jingle. What do we mean by the kingdom? And see if I can remember it. Uh, our three-year-old can remember it. Let's see if dad can. And the jingle is um, he's, uh, he's, oh, it's flying out of my mind. The pressure. It's, uh, um, he's restoring. It's uh, his, his uh, rule and reign under the rightful king. So we're renewing his rule and reign under the rightful king. The world is being restored and renewed uh, under his rule and reign. But that's the kingdom. It's coming. It's his rule. It's his reign. There's a restoration as all things are coming under the rightful king. So kingdom is coming. And then heaven. Notice, kingdom of heaven. Because this is what the, the, the dynamic is. There's a heavenly reality. And it's the job of the church and Jesus and his people is to bring heaven down. There's a heavenly pattern and we bring it down. It's the kingdom of heaven. But notice the kingdom of heaven comes to earth through the spoken proclamation of the gospel. It's his preaching of the gospel. It's the gospel word proclaimed is what gives and sustains life for his people and his church. So the first core competency for any church and for his kingdom is there must be a commitment to his word preached, his word proclaimed. And this is one of the central insights of the Reformation and kind of the historical stream that we float in of Thomas Cramer in the 1500s. He called it the 4-H movement, and that's not like your club at school that deals with cows. But said the, there's a 4-H movement where you have, you have heaven... And then heaven comes through homilies, which is his word for sermon. It enters into people's hearts, and then it moves out and transforms history. So this is a movement. There's a heavenly word that comes through homilies into people's hearts and then transforms history. So this is where it begins. So when the light begins to dawn, notice we've got a couple things. Bring up just three aspects of living in the light of the kingdom. Here's three things that when the light dawns, you live in obedience to God's word and will. You live or have a loving witness and service to others. And then a joyful hope of Christ's return. These are aspects of the kingdom. When it comes, these are marks of how we live. We need his word to live in obedience to his word and will. Loving witness and service to others and joyful hope in Christ's return. So one of the things this means is this is what you need. You need this in your life. You need the authoritative word of the Lord declared, telling you what is and what will be. But that's not all we need. Notice the second thing, starting in verse 18. Here Christ starts to personally call disciples. So we see the Lord of the church calling people to follow him. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boats and their father, and they followed him. So now the second thing that he's going to do is, you know, in the first step, he's going out and it's, it's large, there's public proclamation. In some sense, it's impersonal. 
Everybody needs to repent. Everybody needs to know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's, it's broad, but now he's getting specific. And people start getting named, personally named. So on the one hand, it's not enough just to have public proclamation. There must be personal encounter. So he comes, and notice the location. It's as he was walking, while he was walking by the sea, while he was going about his everyday normal business. And then notice where he encounters them. He encounters them in their occupation. He goes to their job site. And it's in that that he calls them to himself. And the key action here is that they follow and then he makes. Jesus always says, follow me and I will make you. That's the dynamic. We follow, he makes. And then a couple things about that following. Just notice how it's, it's personal. Now, they were called to a specific, unique ministry. They were called out of their kind of daily calling and life. So they had a specific, unique ministry and responsibility to leave their vocation and enter into another one. But all of us have a personal, specific calling. So every person in this room, Jesus is issuing a personal call to you by name, uh, summoning you to follow him in a certain way. And one of the joys, and kind of Martin Lloyd-Jones called this the romance of the Christian life, is like learning to discover and discern the unique ways that he's calling us to be a part of spreading and building his kingdom. But notice their task. What he calls them to do in verse 19, it's follow. You follow. That's your responsibility right now. It's not to plan. It's not to administrate. It's not to orchestrate. It's not to dictate. You follow. You follow me. You follow. You become a disciple. That's what it means, a follower. You become a, an apprentice. Actually, if you want to learn any of these things, the best way to learn any of them is not through the book. It's actually to find someone who will love you enough to walk you through how to teach you these things. And then that's exactly what we see here. They're to follow him. But notice what they're to follow. It says, you follow me. Me. It's a personal call to a person. He calls us personally to follow a person. It's not a call to follow just a generic philosophy or a generic kind of whim or school of thought. It's a call to a person. And then notice what he says he's going to do. I will make you. I will make. You follow, I make. He's going to make them into something that they weren't before. He's going to make them into ministers into his kingdom, uh, for his kingdom. And what I find so interesting is he's actually going to, the cause that I'm going to make you fishers of men, fishers of people. I'm actually going to turn you into an engine and an agent for others. So it's not, I'm going to make you a superstar so you can be celebrated. Um, I'm going to make you a minister to serve others. You follow, but I make. And then notice what they do. They both leave. I think there's a fascinating little detail that they, all the gospel writers let us know. Very specifically, Peter and Andrew left their nets. James and John left their father. Why do they tell us those two details? So I think one of the beauties of the Bible is that it's transcultural. And in every culture, it, it speaks to all of them. And you have some individualistic cultures where the things that make you, your highest allegiance is to, to what you do, the tools of your trade and your craft, your occupation. 
How do you know you live in an individualistic culture? If the first thing you ask when you meet someone new is, what do you do? Then probably in an individualistic culture that sees that as the core of people's identity. Now, not all cultures are that way. Some uh, traditional cultures are much more familial in nature. The most important thing about you is not what you do, but it's, it's whose you are, whose child you are, whose son you, you are, whose daughter you are, the family you're in. But what you see is in this beautiful way that this call of discipleship transcends either. If you're in an individualistic culture and think the most important thing about you is what you do, uh, your craft, your trade, your occupation, they leave those behind. Or if you're in a traditional culture where the highest allegiance you have is, is to your family, you leave those behind. But what's so fascinating in both cases, in one sense they're not really left behind, Jesus is just moved into the center. He becomes the center of both. He becomes the highest uh, reference point. He becomes the focus of allegiance. So think about your own life. Every person in here, there's going to be a specific call where Jesus is going to call you in some specific way to follow him. And it's going to be unique. And so what is it? What is he asking of you? How is he asking uh, you to follow him? What is he saying, I will make you? I will make you into the kind of boss who bears more burdens than he demands. I will make you into the kind of spouse who joyfully sacrifices for the other and doesn't even remember or keep a record of it. I will make you. What's he trying to make you into this morning? That's the second thing he does when he builds his kingdom. He, he pro, first he proclaims his word, then he personally calls disciples to follow. But then look in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. He gives us this beautiful, succinct um, paradigm for ministry. And here we see the life of the world bringing healing to the world. So when he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So here you have in verse um, 23 a key summary of Jesus' ministry. So this is a summation. So even you can even reduce it down from this to almost just this sentence. This is what his ministry is about. And what's fascinating, Matthew is going to repeat it. He's going to repeat it at the end of chapter 9, uh, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And so he's repeating that. That's the, that's the banner that's going to fly over this section of Jesus' ministry. And then what he's actually going to do for the next um, four, five, six chapters is he's going to demonstrate Jesus doing those things. Sermon on the Mount is the great demonstration of his ministry in word, his teaching and preaching. And then chapters 8 and 9 is a great demonstration of his ministry in deed, where you have these ten mighty acts, ten great healings, where he comes to heal and then call people personally to follow him. So this is a, a paradigm for what ministry is is meant to be, what we should be doing as a church and what we need personally. As you look at it, there's a couple key pieces to verse 23. So I start, you know, 
I want to do a book series on there's two types of people and then have this whole kind of series like, you know, there's two types of people, those who can dance and those who can't. You know, there's two types of people who um, correct other people's grammar and have their grammar corrected. And you just have a whole series of things and how people kind of slot in. And this is it. So if you're in the category of you normally have your grammar corrected, it's actually kind of important to notice the grammatical construction of this verse. Because there's one main verb. And it's the verb, he went, he entered in, he went throughout all of Galilee. He went, he entered in. And then there's three participles that are going to describe that main verb. You're looking for the, the ing. The ings help you. Look for the bling, the ings. The three ings that he's doing as he's going. He's teaching, proclaiming, and healing. So those are the three. His ministry, what it is, is he enters in, goes throughout all the regions and enters in, and then the three things he does is he's teaching, preaching, and healing. And then there's a couple key, there's a key word. I want you to notice, it would translate a couple different ways in English, but the same word in Greek, it's the whole loss, every, all. He went through all Galilee, healing all disease, all afflictions, so the frame spread through all Syria, and they brought all the sick. So he's going, and he's entering into every situation and every location. And that's one of the most important things to think about. There's so much here. I think we're not, I'm not going to work kind of through all this. We're going to come back to this next week and think more through about those three ministry tasks of preaching, teaching, healing, how those work themselves out into the life of our church and into, the, into our lives, what we need, how we can experience them. But just think first about that first main verb of him entering in. The first task and the first step for real ministry and real life transformation is he enters in. You think about all the things that are keeping you from the ability to enter in. Or maybe there's a certain situation where you know the Lord's calling you to enter in, enter into that person's life, enter into that place, enter into that location. And think about the things that are keeping you from entering in. You know, David mentioned earlier the, the, almost the epidemic in the developed world on loneliness. You know, what's keeping us from entering into the lives of other people? You know, I think another epidemic that we have that corresponds with loneliness is the lack of listening. I mean, think about your own life. When was the last time you just had felt like somebody just listened to you and you were heard? What's keeping us from being able to enter in? Enter into people's lives, enter into people's places, enter into where they are. And as you notice, you know, the different, the ministry, it comes teaching, proclaiming, healing. His ministry is always word and deed. He comes in word and deed. And when he comes in word, it's preaching and teaching. When he comes in deed, he's healing what's broken and defeating what's evil. It's part of the marks of the kingdom. This is the dynamic, how it comes. Heal what's broken, defeat what's evil. Come, preaching, teaching. But let's just pause there and think about that dynamic of first entering in. Where do we need to enter in? Who, what, when, where, why? And you think about it, in so many different situations, it's difficult. You know, we look in the Sermon on the Mount, and the two great illustrations he gives us is, you are salt of the earth, and the job of salt in this world is to enter into the arenas, the things that are dead, and you're trying to keep it from just getting worse. 
So maybe Jesus is calling you to be salt in a certain situation where you're, you're called to enter into something that is dead, and it's just your job not to make it worse. That's not too bad, you know. It's not your job to resurrect it. Maybe it's just your job just to keep it from smelling worse. Or you think about it, he calls it, we're the light of the world. And then you think about it, every three-year-old knows that in a completely pitch black room, a two-watt light bulb changes everything. And so maybe you think, you know, I can't be the light of the world where I'm this radiant mag spotlight. But man, this dark situation, just two watts. And maybe the two watts is just a smile. Maybe the two watts is just a listening ear where I'm not checking my phone while you're talking. And I will give you the dignity of personhood by looking you in the eye. That's it. Two watts. So what is it to enter in? And you know, it's interesting. All of these quests offer us invitations. Come to me, and you'll improve your deadlift by 30 pounds. Come to me, and you'll drop 25 pounds. Come to me, and you'll learn how to wow all your friends with your exquisite creme brulee. I keep saying that because that's subliminally what I'm wanting to learn. <laughs> come to me. But then when you actually come, many of them hoist burdens on you. thought I had no idea how difficult this would be, how extensive, how demanding. And one of the beautiful things is every training manual offers an invitation. This offers us an invitation. But the invitation that Jesus offers is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. You can take my yoke upon you. You can learn from me uh, because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So come to him. You know, as we, this chapter I find so interesting because there's, you know, some debate. When did Christ actually build, when did the church begin? Did it begin on Pentecost? Did it begin with Adam? Did it begin with Abraham? When did the people, you know, the, the church begin and, you, know, you can make a case that Jesus' church, the house that he's building, starts right here. And somewhat tug-in-cheek, you can see, all right, Jesus is the senior minister. He's called his four associate pastors, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then you have this whole crowd of people who have been touched by his healing hand. They've been summoned by his authoritative word. And then you look, notice what it says. Notice... Um, Satan, one of the great temptations was go up on top of the temple, jump down, and wow the world. And then all of the good, the true, the beautiful, the famous, everybody who you want to follow you will, will, will follow you. And then notice uh, Jesus says, no, thank you. I have my own ministry kind of launch formula. I have my own plan for building my church. I have my own way of wowing the crowd and bringing people, but notice who it's going to be. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed with demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan. So you have this whole group of the ignored and the outcast, the broken and the wounded, who've all been touched by Jesus at their specific point of need. And to some, he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. To others, he says, be healed, your faith has saved you. But to all of them, he brings the wholeness of life. 
And here you have the Israel of God is reborn. The people of God are reformed. He's gathered a community. And now what they need to know is what does this mean to actually follow him? So the next step is to actually give them a more systematic training manual on what it means to be his disciple. And that's actually what we get in the most famous sermon ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. But until then, we just need to see that he's gathered and brought all to come and issues us the same invitation. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your son and both the simplicity and the profundity of his call. So I pray for everyone who's come and entered into this room this morning. I thank you that by the power of your son and his spirit, you don't leave us where we are, but you enter into our life, our situation. And I thank you how there would be a testimony from every person in different ways that you've entered into um, their lives. And so I pray uh, that you would do it again. Pray that if there's anyone who's come in this morning, they know there's an area in their life where they're keeping you at arm's length. Uh, Help them break down any spiritual walls or anything that would keep them from um, opening up the door so that you can enter in. We praise you and thank you that when you come, you come bringing healing in your wings. That when you come with the word, it's the power um, that drives out the darkness so we don't have to stay there or dwell there any longer. So I pray that you would come. Pray for everyone here. I thank you that you issue all of us the call to personally follow you in different and unique ways. So if there's anyone here that needs help and clarity in hearing and heeding that call, I pray that you'd give it. If there's anyone who's wrestling with, all right, what's the next step? We want to be faithful followers of you, but we don't know where to go. So help them uh, know what it is and what it does mean to follow me, follow you. So help them have the the clarity to know at least the next step they should take. And so we praise you and thank you for the way that when your word comes, it brings healing. So I pray that anyone who's entered into uh, this room this morning, they can feel it. They know that in a certain area of their life, they feel the brokenness. We pray that you would come with your spirit to heal them. We thank you for and ask that you would heal our relationship with you, heal our relationship with ourselves, with others, with our world. Bring healing in your wings as you come. In all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.